Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Alrighty, welcome back to part two of the vasculitis disorders. In the last episode, we discussed the small vessel vasculitides, including the prototype cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, then Henoch-Shanlin purpura, and urticarial vasculitis. We then started small and medium vessel vasculitis by discussing mixed cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3. In today's episode, we'll finish up small and medium vessel vasculitis by going over the three ANCA vasculitides before finishing up with medium and large vessel vasculitis. In the interest of time, we'll skip our review of the reaction patterns and jump right in. But before we do, I have to mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Name That Vasculitis. I'm Jerry Titus Vasculitis. In today's first round, we're going to be testing you on the three ANCA-associated vasculitides, which affect small and medium-sized vessels, just like the cryoglobulinemias. You think you got what it takes? Hashtag prove it. Okay, warm-up question worth five points. Can you give me the old and new names for the three ANCA vasculitides? These three ANCA vasculitides include 1. granulomatosis with polyangiitis, formerly known as Wegener's granulomatosis, 2. microscopic polyangiitis, and 3. eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA, which was formerly called Schurg-Strauss syndrome. Together, these disorders have an annual incidence of 20 cases per million people in North America and Europe. Although they are rare, remember that there are lots of rare things out there, and they won't be diagnosed unless you know them and keep them in the back of your mind. We'll discuss the basics of each of these, but first, I want to spend a minute going over what ANCAs actually are. ANCA stands for Anti-Neutrophilic Cytoplasmic Antibodies, and they refer to IgG autoantibodies that target components of neutrophils mostly and monocytes. C-ANCAs, aka Cytoplasmic ANCAs, target proteinase 3, while P-ANCAs, aka Perinuclear ANCAs, target myeloperoxidase. Again, C-ANCAs, a.k.a. cytoplasmic ANCAs, target proteinase 3, while P-ANCAs, a.k.a. perinuclear ANCAs, target myeloperoxidase. Oh, my head is hurting already, but alright, for 10 points and a crisp high five, what is the classic triad of symptoms for granulomatosis with polyangiitis, and what skin changes may be present? You're a dermatologist after all, right?
Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka Wegener's, presents with the triad of upper and lower respiratory disease, along with renal changes. Again, for GPA, think upper and lower respiratory disease, along with renal disease. The upper respiratory changes are often the initial presentation and may include severe sinusitis that may have bloody discharge, oral ulcerations, and the pathognomonic strawberry gums. Lower respiratory changes are seen in around 70% of patients and present as a cough, shortness of breath, or hemoptysis. Then, renal disease is present in around 85% of patients and is often a severe glomerulonephritis with hematuria. The skin changes of GPA are seen in around half of affected patients and include palpable purpura, pyoderma gangrenosum-like ulcers, or subcutaneous nodules. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis patients can also have neurologic changes like peripheral neuropathy and stroke-like symptoms, along with systemic symptoms like fevers, anorexia, and arthralgias. All right, we've got a triple header worth five points each. Part one, what is the classic lab finding for granulomatosis with polyangiitis? And part two, the classic biopsy finding. And part three, what is the number one killer of these poor GPA patients? Hey, Jerry, you suck. Lab findings for GPA include a positive C anca and elevated sed rate, and biopsy will show leukocytoclastic vasculitis along with necrotizing palisading granulomas. Again, lab findings for GPA include a positive C anca and elevated sed rate, and biopsy will show leukocytoclastic vasculitis along with necrotizing palisading granulomas. Then part three, the most deadly manifestation of GPA is the severe glomerulonephritis, which has a greater than 80% mortality in the first year if these patients don't get treatment. And speaking of treatment for GPA, it has to be aggressive since there is the super high mortality without it. Treatment options include cyclophosphamide, prednisone, and other immunosuppressants such as methotrexate and rituximab. Well, well, this guy's got it down. So let's get to round two. Here are your buzzwords. P. anca, lung disease, renal disease, and sparing of the upper respiratory tract. Audience, no helping. Hey, Elroy, what is this crap? Nancy said she got me tickets to a car show. I was expecting to hear some horsepower, not some gosh darn wheeze or talk about creams and bumps. This is going to be microscopic polyangiitis, which you can simply think of as GPA but without the granulomas or the upper respiratory findings like sinusitis. Microscopic polyangiitis patients will also classically have a positive P anca instead of the C anca seen in GPA. Remember, these MPA patients have lung involvement in 25-50% to 50 of cases and glomerulonephritis in 80-90% to 90 of cases, which makes MPA the most common cause of pulmonary renal syndrome. Around half of MPA patients will also have skin changes, including palpable purpura and petechia, along with levito reticularis. And like GPA, microscopic polyangiitis patients can have a type of peripheral neuropathy known as mononeuritis multiplex. Mononeuritis multiplex refers to inflammation of two or more nerve areas resulting in sensory or motor symptoms such as paresthesias, decreased sensation, or motor weakness such as foot drop. 
Speaking of foot drop, did you know that Dr. Grumpy Pants tried to make the bass drop with his med school band that had some goofy song about clobetazole? It was bad, let me tell you. But anyways, let's go on to the next question. For 10 points, here are your buzzwords. Pianka, adult onset asthma, eosinophilia, vasculitis. This is going to be our third and final ANCA-associated vasculitis, which is eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, a.k.a. EGPA, which was formerly called Schurg-Strauss syndrome. EGPA presents in three stages, with stage one having the classic changes we think of with adult-onset asthma, allergic rhinitis, and nasal polyps. In stage two, patients develop the other classic feature with eosinophilia, along with pneumonia and GI issues. Then in stage three, which starts roughly three years after the first stage, patients get a systemic vasculitis with palpable purpura, worsening of asthma and allergic rhinitis, along with mononeuritis multiplex and cardiac issues such as cardiomyopathy, which is the leading cause of mortality for these patients. So, for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka Schurg-Strauss syndrome, think about adult-onset asthma, allergic rhinitis, eosinophilia, vasculitis, cardiac changes, and mononeuritis multiplex. Let's see who's good at putting it all together for a whopping 50 points. What's missing in eGPA compared to granulomatosis with polyangiitis and microscopic polyangiitis? Five seconds. Eosinophilic GPA does not have renal changes, which differentiates it from GPA and MPA. As far as workup and treatment for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, it typically has a positive P-ANCA, the eosinophilia we already mentioned, along with elevated IgE levels and a high white count. So, once the diagnosis of eGPA is made, treatment includes systemic corticosteroids and cyclophosphamide if these patients are really sick. And I want to mention a couple of small disclaimers now that we've gone through the three main ANCA vasculitides. One is to be aware that you can see all sorts of positive P and C ANCA combinations for these ANCA vasculitides. I'm simply mentioning the most common for each of them. Two is that there are also drug-induced ANCA vasculitides caused by minocycline, levamisole-tainted cocaine, and hydralazine, so keep these in mind too. Just because you have a vasculitis with a positive C or P ANCA, it doesn't necessarily clinch one of these diagnoses or even guarantee it's one of these three at all. Alrighty daddy, we're moving on to round three. First question, 100 points. Here are your buzzwords. Medium vessel vasculitis, hepatitis B, testicular pain, owie. This is going to be polyarteritis nodosa, aka PAN. Polyarteritis nodosa comes in two flavors, one being the classic systemic form and two being cutaneous PAN, which has limited systemic involvement. Regardless of the type, polyarteritis nodosa skin changes include palpable purpura on the lower legs, including painful subcutaneous nodules that follow the course of the underlying blood vessels. 
Since the medium-sized vessels are involved, patients may also have a lacy levetoreticularis interspersed amongst these purpura and nodules. Okay, okay. Blood vessels feed every organ in our body, so these PAN patients can have many systemic findings. Yet, PAN tends to spare one organ system. For 100 points, name the organ system typically spared in PAN patients. Hey, Jerry, you suck! <laughs> Polyarteritis nodosa typically spares the lungs, but not much else. Patients can have constitutional symptoms like fevers, malaise, and arthralgias, which are much more mild in the cutaneous PAN subtype. Organ involvement in classic PAN includes the nerves, cardiac, GI, renal, and GU systems. Neurologic changes affect 75% of PAN patients and include paresthesias and motor neuropathies resulting in foot drop, which is why sural nerve biopsies around the ankle can help clinch the diagnosis. Besides neuro changes, cardiac arrhythmias and infarction can even result from polyarteritis nodosa. Gastrointestinal changes include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and even bowel infarction leading to hemorrhage. Renal changes affect around half of PAN patients and can be quite dangerous and result in renal failure and hypertension. These changes are often confirmed with imaging such as a CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis. These PAN patients do not get glomerulonephritis, however. Bonus question interjection. For 200 points, why do PAN patients not get a glomerulonephritis? Audience, no helping. Since PAN is a medium vessel vasculitis, it causes renal disease by affecting perfusion of the kidneys. It doesn't affect the small vessels within the glomeruli of the kidneys. Therefore, polyarteritis nodosa leads to hypertension rather than glomerulonephritis. Cool stuff, huh? So, another clinical pearl that our good friend Jerry Titus Vasculitis mentioned is to always remember that male PAN patients can have orchitis resulting in testicular pain. I've seen male PAN patients who were really bothered by this testicular pain, and it was a huge clue for getting their diagnosis correct. Alright, about time for me to jump in and stop the testicle talk. So, for 25 points each, tell me instead some of the associations you should be searching for in the polyarteritis nodosa patients. Hey Jared! How come it sounds like you got a few everlasting gobstoppers stuck in your throat every time you talk? <laughs> the big associations with PAN to remember are hepatitis B more so than hepatitis C, along with HIV, CMV, strep infections, and inflammatory bowel disease. Again, the associations to remember with polyarteritis nodosa include hepatitis B, hep C, HIV, CMV, strep infections, and inflammatory bowel disease. Alright, here's another toughie for funsies. How do you diagnose and treat these PAM patients? Diagnosis of polyarteritis nodosa requires 3 out of 10 criteria put out by the American College of Rheumatology. I like to remember them in terms of the signs and symptoms, followed by abnormalities found during workup. 
These are nothing you have to memorize, but just know that they're out there and should be referenced if you're trying to make the diagnosis. So, the 10 criteria for polyarteritis nodosa include 1. Weight loss of 4 kilograms or more, 2. Levito reticularis, 3. Testicular pain or tenderness, 4. Myalgias or leg weakness or tenderness, 5. One or more neuropathies, 6. Hypertension with diastolic blood pressure greater than 90, 7. Elevated BUN greater than 40 or creatinine greater than 1.5 that can't be explained by dehydration or obstruction. 8. Positive hepatitis B antigen or antibodies. 9. Arteriogram demonstrating aneurysms or occlusion of visceral arteries without another explanation. And 10. Biopsy showing neutrophils in the wall of a small or medium-sized artery. And if you didn't get that, just tap that rewind button a couple times. Or it'll also be in the study guide available on the website for you all at LearnDermPodcast.com. Okay, let's focus on answering the questions and not this self-promotion baloney. And speaking of promotion, let's take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, you can tell me all about the biopsy findings of a patient with polyarteritis nodosa. Stick around. Hey, Doc, you got anything that'll treat this festering doohickey? Oh, you betcha. There's a great new topical called crummy croitment. Let me grab you a coupon card, some samples, a diaper, and I'll call you an Uber home. Crummy Crointment is a non-FDA-approved topical treatment with proven efficacy against festering doohickeys. 50% of patients note 50% improvement 100% of the time. Side effects for Crummy Crointment include irritation, redness, dry mouth, alopecia, hirsutism, constipation, insomnia, explosive hematochesia, headaches, runny nose, priapism, pica, erythroderma, anemia, leukopenia, altered mental status, and additional festering doohickeys. If you have festering doohickeys, Talk to your dermatologist about crummy corointment today. Hey, Doc, my festering doohickey is gone, but I got a big charge from the Uber driver for soil in the back seat. All right, let's get back to those biopsy findings of polyarteritis nodosa. Polyarteritis nodosa biopsies will usually show leukocytoclastic vasculitis along with the arteritis of medium-sized arteries in the deep dermis or sub-Q, which may show a lobular paniculitis next to the involved vessels. Other workup for PAN patients include labs such as Hep B and C antibody titers, BMP and UA to assess renal function, CBC which may show an anemia, inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP, and of course C and P ANCAs which should be negative for these patients. Since strep can be associated with childhood PAN, ASO titers can be checked for these patients as well. Imaging for PAN patients includes a renal angiogram to look for aneurysms or renal artery stenosis. And last but not least, treatment for PAN includes immunosuppressives such as systemic corticosteroids for at least six months along with methotrexate or cyclophosphamide. Organ-specific management should include other consultants such as nephro or cardio and any underlying causes such as strep or hepatitis B should be treated accordingly as well. All right, everyone, we are going to the final round. Here are your buzzwords. Child, fevers, vasculitis, strawberry tongue.
This is going to be Kawasaki disease, which requires fever of at least five days and four out of five of the other diagnostic criteria. We discuss Kawasaki disease more in depth a few episodes back in the toxin-mediated rashes, but let's hit some of the highlights again. Remember the mnemonic crash and burn from the first aid book for diagnosing Kawasaki disease. The burn refers to burning hot fevers greater than 39 degrees Celsius for five or more days. And then we need four out of five of the crash criteria, which includes C for conjunctivitis, R for rash, which refers to the polymorphous exanthem that can be perianal, A for adenopathy, aka cervical lymphadenopathy, S for strawberry tongue or other oral changes, and H for hands and feet with erythema, edema, and eventual desquamation. And what else should you know about Kawasaki disease? Remember, most cases are in kids less than 5 years old and especially around 10 months of age. Most patients have Asian ancestry, especially Japanese kids. And probably the most important thing to remember are the coronary artery aneurysms that develop several weeks after symptom onset in around 25% of untreated kids. Remember, these aneurysms are due to a medium vessel vasculitis, which is why we're discussing it with geriatitis. And because Kawasaki disease is a vasculitis, these patients can have a slew of other systemic symptoms, including uveitis, arthralgias, gastroenteritis, irritability, and urethritis that may be symptomatic. Okay, for 100 extra points to take home and put on the fridge, tell me the workup you want to do for a patient suspected to have Kawasaki disease. Remember, the mnemonic is WATCH, which are the lab abnormalities to watch for in Kawasaki disease, including white blood cell elevations, anemia, thrombocytosis or thrombocytopenia, CRP elevation, and hypoalbuminemia. Remember that platelet counts elevate because they are an acute phase reactant. Therefore, they increase along with labs like a sed rate and CRP when there's systemic inflammation. In addition, you should also do nose and throat swabs for strep, blood cultures, a UA, and an anti-streptolysin O, aka ASO titer, since kids with scarlet fever can also have similar findings with the fevers, exanthem, and strawberry tongue. Besides these labs, you also want to get a stat echo to rule out any cardiac involvement for these kids. So, how do you treat one of these Kawasaki disease patients? Hey, Jared. I heard you didn't even go to med school. You just said you did. <laughs> For the acutely ill KD patient, you will give IVIG at 2 grams per kilogram over 12 hours as a single dose. Whenever you give IVIG, you should also be checking IgA levels, since selective IgA deficiency is relatively common. Remember that IVIG contains all the immunoglobulins. Therefore, if you give it to somebody whose body has never made its own IgA, their immune system will see the IgA in the IVIG as foreign and mount a response that may lead to anaphylaxis. So, besides the IVIG, high-dose aspirin is a mainstay at 80 to 100 mg per kg per day. Remember, this is the only time that aspirin is acceptable to give to children. And if patients fail to respond to IVIG and aspirin, they may need repeat IVIG treatment, corticosteroids, or other steroid-sparing agents like cyclosporin and cyclophosphamide. Alright, so pat yourselves on the backs, because that covers the main, small, and medium vessel vasculitides that we need to know. 
I will round things out by briefly touching on the large vessel vasculitides, who will likely show up to their PCP or another specialist before they ever see us in dermatology. So, these include temporal arteritis, aka giant cell arteritis, and Takayasu's arteritis. Temporal arteritis patients are usually over the age of 50 and typically in their 70s and develop a granulomatous vasculitis of the temporal artery. Signs and symptoms include tenderness in this temporal area along with loss of pulses, a headache, and jaw claudication. Skin changes that we might detect include erythema, cyanosis, purpura, or tender nodules. Systemic changes of temporal arteritis include fevers, associated polymyalgia rheumatica in around half of cases with aching and stiffness of the shoulder girdle, and lastly, the dreaded visual changes that can result in blindness due to ischemia. Workup includes elevated ESR, CRP, and a temporal artery biopsy showing vasculitis. Treatment includes aspirin and systemic steroids. And lastly, let's touch on Takayasu's arteritis, which is a granulomatous vasculitis affecting the aorta or its main branches in patients typically less than 40 years old. The classic findings include constitutional symptoms like fevers, night sweats, and weight loss, claudication of the extremities with decreased radial pulses, and a difference in blood pressure greater than 10 millimeters of mercury between each arm. The skin changes include erythematous papules, purpura, erythema nodosum, and Raynaud's phenomenon. Like giant cell arteritis, Takayasu's arteritis will show an elevated ESR and can be treated with prednisone. Alright, goody goody. We've covered the main categories of small, medium, and large vessel vasculitis, but we're forgetting one miscellaneous category which would bring great shame to Jerry Titus vasculitis if we didn't cover septic vasculitis. So for 10 points each, what are causes of septic vasculitis? Septic vasculitis involves a systemic infection that damages the vessels by either 1. invading the vessels directly or 2. causing immune system mediated damage. The main causes you want to consider include subacute bacterial endocarditis, staphylococcal or pseudomonas septicemia, Neisseria gonococcemia and meningococcemia, Vibrio vulnificus, and last but not least rickettsial pox and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Again, the main causes for septic vasculitis include subacute bacterial endocarditis, staphylococcal or pseudomonas septicemia, gonococcemia and meningococcemia, vibrio vulnificus, rickettsial pox, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. In general, the morphologies for septic vasculitis can vary widely from hemorrhagic pustules of staph septicemia to large ulcerating bulla caused by pseudomonas in cases of ecthyma gangrenosum. Pathology usually shows a small vessel vasculitis with neutrophils and thrombi. This differs from the vasculopathies in that vasculopathies like DIC and TTP have minimal or no inflammatory infiltrate to go with the thrombi on path, while septic vasculitis does have inflammation. We'll touch on the details more in the next episode on vasculopathies. All right, everybody, it's been great fun. I'm Jerry Titus Vasculitis. We're going to forget that boring summary at the end and keep the fun alive for one last bonus round. I'll give the scenario, you say which type of vasculitis I'm referring to. Okay, let's lob a softball first. Your patient has a history of severe sinusitis. He's coughing up blood and the primary team thinks he has tuberculosis. You look him over and find palpable purpura on his legs and strawberry gums in his mouth. 
You also look through his labs and his creatinine is 4.9. What blood test do you draw and what do you think he has? In this scenario, you want to check for a C-ANCA to confirm granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka Wegener's granulomatosis. Okay, how about another patient? She doesn't feel too shabby, but also has palpable purpura on her lower legs. She was treated two weeks ago with Bactrim for a UTI. Your biopsy shows perivascular neutrophils, vessel wall expansion in fibrin deposition, and red blood cell extravasation. Rest of your workup is negative. What do you think she has? This would be cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. Another middle-aged female comes in with urticarial lesions that aren't going away and her joints hurt. Her skin lesions burn, they don't itch. And there's mixed purpura in between. What labs may be decreased in one-fourth of cases and what might it tell you? Remember that around one-fourth of urticarial vasculitis cases are hypocomplementemic, so labs will show decreased CH50 and decreased C3 and C4, which is associated with systemic disease such as arthritis, GI, or ocular changes. Okay, here's a quickie, and don't get too excited. How about purpura and painful testicles? And how about systemic polyarteritis nodosa? You got this down, Sparky. If you ever need help with a patient with vasculitis, call your old friend here, Jerry Titus. Good night, everybody. All right, so that does it for today's episode and covers the rest of vasculitis. In the next episode, we'll discuss what happens when you biopsy your purpuric patient and there's no vasculitis on path. Then we start to look towards the vasculopathies. So please join us again, and as always, don't hesitate to contact us through our website at grenzonederm.com. That's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com, if there's any way that we can improve our content. I want to make these episodes as engaging and informative as possible, so the feedback so far has really helped. So I'm Logan Kolb, thanks again for joining, and see you next time here in the Grand Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grand Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it still playing? Yeah. Hey, Jerry, why don't you put down that microphone and shove it up your <laughs> Hey, Elroy, I got 50 bucks says Jerry's going to mess up the next bit. <laughs>